Welcome to Rules of the Frame. I'm your host, Connor Reed, and here's your other host, John Skinner. Glad to be here. You feeling nostalgic for a time that you didn't live in? Yes, always. That's my default state. Is this what you pictured the late 70s to look like? Yes. I've been in plenty of old houses, dude. I know what they (laughs) smelled like. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, for those of you who are listening in for the first time, we are a film podcast. We pick a subject or theme and explore films related to those topics. Our overall goal is to encourage the general public to view film as more than just a piece of entertainment, but also a piece of art and something to discuss and explore. We are just starting off our retelling or ripoff series where we are going over films and trying to figure out, are they an homage to the film? Is it trying to capture a certain feel or is it just a blatant ripoff trying to do their own thing, trying to take something that was good from something else and transplant it into a new film? This is an interesting one. So for this film, we are covering Super 8 slash E.T., but we are mainly focusing in on Super 8. And I personally think it's more of a retelling slash homage than just a blatant ripoff, but it does really walk the line. Uh, John, thoughts? I have mostly positive things to say, maybe, or mostly positive feelings. So I'd be hard-pressed to call it a ripoff. But yeah, we have to talk through what works and what doesn't. And surprise, surprise, this, I feel like this is the first time in a while that it's just the two of us again. Like, I feel like we've just had guests on for the last however many episodes. So it's been a while since it's just been the two of us. I feel like J.J. Abrams made this movie set in 1979 just so people are, like, calling it an 80s movie. He can be like, actually. Mm-hmm. But this is also, right, we'll get into this. <laughs> okay. Before we get into our discussion, I'm going to start us off with a summary of the film. In small-town Ohio, a young boy, Joe, sits outside his house while the reception for his mother's funeral goes on inside. A beat-up car pulls up and a drunken man stumbles into his home. His father, a police deputy, immediately cuffs him, throws him in the back of a police car, and drives off. Four months later, Joe and his friend Charles get out of school and talk about filming Charles' zombie movie. Charles tells Joe that he added a new part in his script, being played by Alice. Joe goes out to dinner with his dad, who is signing him up for baseball camp for the summer. Joe protests, but his dad says it'll be fun. That night, Joe, Charles, and their other friends wait for Alice to show up. She pulls up in her dad's car and says that Joe shouldn't come because he's the deputy's son and she's driving illegally. Charles says he's alright, and she lets him go. They reach the train station and start setting up for the scene. In the rehearsal, Alice leaves them dumbfounded with her acting bravado. A train starts heading their way, and Charles rushes them to get into place for production value. The scene is going great as the train is whizzing by when Joe notices a truck heading straight for it. It crashes into the train, derailing it, and sending debris and cars flying in all directions. The kids run away, and Joe stumbles upon a train car that is thrashing about. The door of the car flies off, and something comes out. When the commotion dies down, the kids regroup and discover the truck with one of their school's teachers inside. He is surprisingly still alive and tells them not to speak a word about it to anyone. They notice a group of men heading their way and grab the camera and peel out in Alice's car. The next day, Charles and Joe head to the camera store to get it fixed, and the film developed. Joe heads over to Alice's house to convince her to do more scenes when her father shows up and tells him to never come back 
and not to speak to Alice. Rebelliously, she agrees to do the scenes and heads out to the train wreck with them. The gang films another scene, and Joe notices that the train is Air Force, like his model. After the sheriff goes missing, Joe's dad shows up at the wreckage and questions what is going on, but the general doesn't tell him anything. Afterward, Joe's dad gets calls from all around town about stolen engines and electronics. He sees military trucks start to pour into town and listens into a radio frequency, hearing the code name for their operation. Joe and the crew film a scene next to the military trucks for more production value when his dad shows up and shuts them down, telling him he's not allowed to hang out with Alice anymore. Joe's dad spots the general and brings up the code name, to which he says they should meet up later. When he arrives at the airfield, he's put under arrest. Joe goes to the cemetery and notices movement coming from a nearby garage. He runs back to his house and is startled by Alice showing up at his window. She comes inside and they watch some footage of Joe's mother. Alice tells Joe that his mom died because her dad was too drunk for his shift and she took it for him. Joe says he's not angry at him and they are interrupted by the cube that Joe took from the crash site. It starts shaking and then bursts through Joe's wall headed towards the town water tower. Alice heads back home and her father drunkenly interrogates her. She leaves and he follows after her, apologizing. He crashes the car and sees Alice get abducted by the creature. Joe and Charles watch over the footage from the night of the wreck, but get into a fight after they both say that they like Alice. They get distracted by the footage, which captured the creature coming out of the train car. Air raid sirens start to go off and they are told that they have to evacuate due to a fire. At the military shelter, Joe finds Alice's dad, who tells him that the creature took her. Joe meets up with the rest of the gang and they hatch a plan to head back into town. They convince the stoner clerk from the camera store to take them back to the school. There they discover the teacher's stash of old footage and documents. Upon examination, they realize that he was part of a government project studying the creature. He claims that he bonded with it when it touched him and realized it just wanted to build its spaceship and go home. Soldiers burst into the classroom and place them under arrest. They take them away in a prison bus and the clerk calls the police for help. En route to the base, they are attacked by the creature. The boys escape, but all of the soldiers are killed. They start to follow the creature back towards town to find Alice. Meanwhile, Joe's dad escapes from detainment and finds one of Joe's friends at the shelter. He's told that his son was captured by the military back in town and shown the footage of the alien. He takes Alice's dad and heads back into town. The town has now become a war zone with tanks firing in all directions. The boys enter a house when a tank blows a hole in it. One of them is injured, so Charles stays behind with him. Now Joe and Carrie head to the shed by the graveyard and discover a massive cave. They rappel down and discover the creature's invention along with the hanging bodies of townsfolk, including Alice. Carrie causes a distraction while Joe sets Alice free, but they are soon pursued by the creature. They are backed into a corner and the creature picks Joe up. He tells it to leave and that it's okay that bad things happen. The creature's invention finally starts to work and it lets them go. The kids get to the surface and see that the invention is a giant magnet and attracts all of its technology back to it. The creature starts to build its ship and Joe and Alice are met by their fathers. Joe's locket containing the picture of his mother is pulled towards the ship and Joe lets go of it. The creature takes off and leaves the town staring in wonder. Except for his dad who is weirdly uninterested in first contact with an alien species while they're hugging. There's quite a few of them that seem like they're a bit disaffected by what's going on. That guy just really wants his gun. Yeah. So my two words are murky feeling. They're not related to each other. The one, mm. one is the murkiness, right? It's not a sharp movie. In terms of like doing the, the, the Spielberg thing, it gets the feeling right. The feeling is very much right. And in, and in some ways, it's a more powerful emotional story for the 
human characters than most 80s Spielberg or Spielberg-adjacent movies that you'd think it's cribbing from, uh, other than the best of Spielberg, right? It sort of reminds me of, like, if Steven Spielberg never had the 90s, right? He never had 94 with both the big success of Jurassic Park and, and everything that came from that and the, obviously, Schindler's List, where after that he does one for me, one for you, and, and kind of goes wild and, and has a whole other chapter of his career. But if he had just kept doing 70s, 80s movies the way he was doing it, like 30 years later, uncorked one like this, it would be like, a return to form, and people would be like, good job, Spielberg, you did it again, right? You've had a rough couple decades. Spielberg's better than that, though, so he moved on. That's what this movie feels like at best, which is not bad. Like, it, it does get that feeling right, but it's murky because, dang it, he doesn't... Sometimes J.J. does not know how to sh- shoot a scene. Like, some scenes look great, but watching this next to E.T. made me realize that while the feeling of the mystery box J.J. Abrams is good at, he doesn't quite know how to reveal things or show things at the end. And so you just get to like the climax in the tunnels and it's like, what is going on? Like, it's just not clear when you reveal the alien, when you reveal what it's doing, it's still not clear what its motivations are. Contrasting that with E.T., which is a different story, but it's the same pieces in different places, but different emphasis. And it works better in Spielberg's work because it's less about the mystery of, ooh, what's happening? Like, what's coming? You know, it's never about that. It's about the human characters, which this movie does well, but also the connection with something otherworldly, which to me falls completely flat with the ending, which we'll talk about the ending. But yeah, so hit or miss, I think mostly hit, but you sort of get a sense that J.J. Abrams is sharpening, is like sanding off the sharp edges and the and the weird imperfections that make Spielberg's movie is so good, like the weirdness of the astronauts coming into the house, right? Even when Spielberg does something like that, that's like, why is that happening? It adds to the feeling that the movie is creating. Whereas this, he sort of knows how to do the, the 80s movie feel, but doesn't quite nail uh, the landing. He doesn't stick the landing quite 100%. Yeah. My two words are sincerely flawed. Because I was going into this kind of expecting, because the last time I think I watched this, this is the third time I've seen it, was my senior year of college, right? Whenever Stranger Things had come out and everyone was so pumped about it and then so into 80s stuff. And then one of my friends was like, oh my gosh, we need to do like a watch party for Super 8 then. Because it's just like, it was like the original Stranger Things. I remember like going to that and I still liked it. I mean, every time I've watched it, I've liked this movie. I do really like this movie. But then I think because I'd watched it in that context, I was like, oh yeah, it's just kind of a nostalgia piece from like the 80s and like plays into that. And it really isn't. And I think people think of it like that. And I'm like, this is actually like a really sincere homage instead of just trying to, I mean, I like Stranger Things. It is definitely trying to produce that vibe though. Like it is trying so incredibly hard. And I think it gets more and more like that with every season where like the first season, it's so on the nose, but then like the story is, good so you just kind of get over that and then with every other season that comes after it the nostalgia push gets so much more and more intense that i mean it's impossible to ignore and that's why like most people watch it because like oh it's like being in the 80s you know and that whole sort of thing but this is not like it at all like honestly what it reminds me of is like a richard linklater movie like dazed and confused or everybody wants some where he's like 
man, that was just a really good time. And just like wanting that feeling of childhood instead of trying to reproduce an age and an era. Because there's not, a, I mean, there's like subtle things like the posters and the toys and that sort of thing. But it's not like in Stranger Things where the, each of those things have their own scene where there's just a whole scene of them just playing Dragon's Lair in an arcade together. You know, that that whole kind of thing. Why is nobody ever like a fan of the Dark Crystal or something? Like it's always right. the big, the best, the biggest hits that people are fans of. J.J. Abrams feels like he wants to make what was good about these 80s movies and he actually makes it like it was made in the 80s. And in doing so, and, and the success of that, actually, I think you start to see his flaws as a filmmaker. But what Stranger Things does that I think well is it sort of mashes up. Super 8 is the feeling of being a child through doing the same thing again, that, that feeling of childhood that E.T. evokes. Mm -hmm. Stranger Things evokes being a child directly through the idea of watching an 80s movie. Not yeah. living in the 80s, watching an 80s movie. And it's mm -hmm. a difference. I think this is a better like attempt at that. What it, Stranger Things does well is that it does really does a good job of like weirdly mashing up it's Stephen King and Steven Spielberg combined, which I mean has no one has ever done, and it's kind of works. They really go hard into like every poster is a big movie and like every toy, right? Which watching E.T. again, I was surprised how much of that is in E.T. Like mostly it's just him making references to his friends' movies. Yeah, but, yeah. But it's weird to see an eighties movie that's so obsessed with the eighties, like A.T. is somewhat, but it never it never is like, look at this thing, like look at this movie. It's just like it never crosses that line that, 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 and becomes sort of obvious and distracting. Before we get into that, I'll do a quick now in film history. So this actually starts way back in J.J. Abrams' childhood whenever he used to make Super 8 movies. And actually, Larry Fong, who is the DP of this, lived across the street from J.J. and made his own movies and all that sort of stuff as well. And I don't think the two of them really worked together, but they both just kind of concurrently made their own movies and so he submits one of his films to a film festival gets recognized at least and so he gets put in this article with him and matt reeves about like hey look at these young kids who are filmmakers and out of the blue steven spielberg calls both of them up or his assistant calls both of them up saying hey spielberg has these old super 8 movies that he has would you want to work on like restoring and editing them so that's how their first connection got started. He didn't actually meet Spielberg in that process. But then years later, once he had actually finished film school or was like going through film school, starting his writing career, all of that sort of stuff, he gets a meeting with Spielberg and says, hey, I don't know if you remembered, but I actually edited some of your movies. He's like, oh, yeah, you're JJ. And so made that just instant connection, just completely remembered them, which started both of them kind of not really working together. It's actually weird. There's a couple movies that they have technically worked on together. Um, that neither of them directed, which is really interesting. J.J. is just very blatant of saying, hey, Spielberg is one of my biggest inspirations. I think he's great at the way he tells stories and the perspective that he comes from and just being engaged with movies at such a young age. And so Abrams' career takes off first as a, a writer, like a television writer and show creator, and he's sold, he sells scripts that get directed. And then he finally gets to make his first movie with Mission Impossible 3 and then with Star Trek and then decides he wants to make his own movie and is going back and forth 
and is really wanting to make this movie about being a kid and getting over the loss of a parent and like just kind of hanging out with your friends and that sort of thing. Doesn't think that that's going to fly, though, that he's going to get any money for that and had this idea for kind of this creature on the loose sort of movie and decides to combine the two of them. So that way it'll be more profitable and that he can actually get a better budget for it. One of those movies was more fully formed. I can tell you right that. Oh, 100%. 100%. And so makes the movie and lo and behold, Spielberg's like, hey, I want to produce this. I want to make this with you. And so he directly says this is an homage to Steven Spielberg's movies. And Spielberg comes on set multiple times, helps him direct some scenes. And he just says, you know, throughout that whole process, I was able to call up Spielberg and just say, hey, I don't know how to do this. What would you do in this scenario? And he'd say, oh, I, well, I do that and I do that and I do that. And so it's kind of in some ways one of those weird things like with Goonies and Poltergeist where Spielberg semi ends up directing through producing. Not so much with this one as especially for Poltergeist, which he basically does direct even though he quote unquote produced it. But there's definitely his fingerprints on it. And it's interesting to see how his fingerprints develop in certain ways than in others. And the film comes out and I think it's a success. It makes a fair amount of money and kind of becomes this pop culture sort of hit of like, oh, man, this is nostalgic and like reminds me of this time. And because it's so stylized, but not in the sense of throwing posters and references everywhere, but just that it is a very stylized movie. And I think that's one of the things that works to its benefit. And I think it's a good movie. I do think it's a good movie uh, because I think it avoids the temptation. It mostly gives in, but it avoids the temptation enough to not become all consumed by the 80s references. You know, they're still like, oh, I have a Walkman. And then the cop's like, that's a bad idea. Slippery slope. Like kids are going to be bad What is bad this world now. coming to? Yeah. What is this world? And it's like, okay. Walking around the house, Three Mile Island's happening, and no one cares, apparently. Even though- <laughs> so weird stuff like that. It's like, okay, not everything has to be like that all the time, right? Mm-hmm. But it gets out of its own way and, and actually shows us the lives of these characters. They have decent character arcs. My problem is that it's interesting you talked about the two. I didn't know it was two movie ideas connected because the alien, J.J. Abrams is pretty good at not showing it and like sort of hinting at it. He doesn't do it nearly as well as Spielberg does. Mm-hmm. Probably no one can, but like it doesn't do it as well as Stranger Things does either in terms of like the horror of the unknown. And then that storyline of, of the this unexplained things happening doesn't really relate directly to the character arc to me, right? Mm-hmm. It's basically like the dads get have to save their kids together so there's a reconciliation, right? But it's very quick. Yeah, I think the, the movie of the character's storyline, the real life stuff is much more effective than this alien stuff paying out, playing out in the background. And honestly is, is sort of working. And then you see the alien, you see what's happening and it's like, okay, that's it. It's the Cloverfield monster. I think or smaller. <laughs> it's not an iconic character like ET. It's not jaws. Like that character failed. I think by the end mm-hmm. and it doesn't ruin the movie because the emotion the, the emotional arc that the characters have is still pretty good, but it sort of feels disjointed because it never feels like this thing we're supposed to be afraid of is having a direct impact on the emotional arc. Obviously, it's forcing them to do all these things and run around and deal with tanks and, and like sort of try and survive, mm-hmm. but that doesn't directly connect to their arcs 
characters the way that E.T. does. It spends its whole time with that connection. Right. A lot of people, whenever this came out, was like, oh, it's just a ripoff of E.T. Like, it's the same exact thing. And I think they think that because it's like, oh, this alien crash lands to Earth. There's a bunch of, you know, middle school kids. And then they help it get back home. What I think the actual comparison is, is that both E.T. and Super 8 are movies about kids trying to overcome the loss of a parent through an alien. That's the major through line instead of it just being, oh, they got to get this alien home. That's kind of arbitrary to both of those films. I wasn't allowed to watch E.T. as a kid. And it's really interesting because my wife, Claire, it was the same sort of thing where her parents wouldn't let them watch it, which is really funny because my mom loves E.T., but I just always remember seeing clips of it and just being like, oh, that's a really sad movie because it just plays on TV like all the time. And my grandma loved it. And so whenever we went up to their house, it was almost always playing. And so I'd see these bits and pieces of it. And it was always the stuff of him in the lab at the end and Elliot crying or like them getting drunk and that sort of thing. And I was just like, wow, this is just a really sad movie. And so I didn't want to watch it for the longest time because I thought it was too sad and that I wouldn't be able to handle it. And then I finally watched it maybe when I was like 12 or something. And I liked it. But again, it was just like those sad elements were just like so vivid because it had been built up in my mind. And I I think I watched it again at some point in college and really liked it. But then so much of it was faded from my memory. And so even because of that, they were rewatching it this time. There is this internal dread of like, I'm going to be really sad after this. And man, I love that movie so much. I'm like, I think this is like a perfect movie. Just starting out, I was like the first five minutes of them coming down to space, no faces, no dialogue, nothing whatsoever, just playing to shadows. You don't see E.T. until like fully until what, like 30 to 45 minutes into the movie, it takes a long time. And that's the beauty of it is because even though you know what E.T. looks like and he's so iconic, there's still just like this, oh, what the heck? Like these things, the clues that you're given don't make any sense because there's the weird footsteps, there's the jingling, there's the throwing of stuff and you're like, okay, so it ha- it's a three-toed thing. It hops around, you can see that it hops It also has fingers because you see those little fingers a lot. But what is it doing? And you just have no idea what the intentions are. And I I just think it plays so beautifully. I think JJ tries to do that with this one because he says we've specifically framed a lot of the shots. So that way, whenever you see glimpses of the alien, you're like, what the heck is it? That doesn't make any sense, which I think works in some ways, but then almost works to a negative where I really couldn't describe to you what it looks like other than it has a bunch of arms it kind of walks like a spider that's where i don't think it sticks to landing is that you're you're throwing you're throwing et and and jaws in a blender right like mm-hmm. you're you're trying to have the story of et without the connection with the alien because yeah you don't see et for a while but then you do see et and you learn to love et right that's mm-hmm. the choice that movie makes and why it's so great because it's so different than all these other horror movies right it's, it's even the horror stuff at the beginning, it's really magical, right? Like, like it's not a. I, I was thinking about the shed in, in uh, Stranger Things, which is really effective, right? Mm. It's horrible. It's empty. It doesn't make sense. Something was in there, and now it's not. But it's all dark, right? It's all dark, and the light is very small, and all it shows is, all it serves to do is, uh, scare you from what you can't see. Whereas in ET, 
the shed is lit up and it's mm-hmm. like something was there and now it's gone. Like it's more of like a, a pet. Right. And so you have a buildup, but it's more like, what well, you know, wonder, not horror. And right. um, this movie tries to have the emotional story of E.T. with the, I think almost like a Xerox memory version of what everyone sort of thinks 80s movies did mm-hmm. with this stuff. It's really not what it was like all the time. There's a bunch of different stories being told that people are pulling from, and they're not all the same horror, you know, styling. And Well, the kids don't even realize that there's an alien until they see the footage almost towards the end of the movie. And so there's no connection with it whatsoever. And I had this weird off memory of this where I thought the bus scene happened way early on in the movie because that's like the first scene where they actually interact with the alien. I'm like, oh yeah, that's got to happen in like the first like 15, 30 minutes, right? And then they, you know, they're trying to figure out what the alien's doing. I'm like, oh no, that's like the second to last event that happens. It's just weird. The pacing in this movie is kind of strange. Yeah, it is. It's interesting. E.T. too, like the keys guy is a much better defined (laughs) villain. Mm -hmm. Ends up being a much more like well-rounded human person character than this guy, the bad guy in this. Nemec. Yeah, and you see him, you know his name, you see him talk a lot, and yet the keys guy, who you don't see for most of the movie, ends up being a real person. Yeah, Just one of the greatest character motifs ever. Oh my gosh, it is so effective. Even though it gets a little overplayed, you're still like, I know exactly who this guy is. And then the reveal of like, I'm here for you, and you're like, what? Like, I thought this guy was evil. Like, I thought he was trying to kill E.T. this whole time. And he's like, no, I want to help you. And I'm like, oh, it's so strange. It lets you, like, take all the negative associations, like authoritarian associations you could have with a park ranger or a FBI agent or a scientist. Like, like you don't really know what he is, and so mm-hmm. you just know he's hunting E.T. And so, yeah, when you get the reveal of, like, he's sort of the science teacher equivalent yeah. in, in uh, this. Things, yeah. Oh, no, yeah. yeah this, that's yeah. What, it, yeah. It, which is actually strange. The whole empathetic thing, to me, is the most cribbed part of this whole story. Like when it touches them, that it gets connected yes. to them. Mm. Yes, it, this is the part that is most a ripoff of ET, and it doesn't make any sense. It should have just been yeah. cut out of it completely because it's almost like it's used as an exposition dump. Like the only way you can understand what's going on with this alien is if you had people touch it and then they share their minds with it. But the alien doesn't act like ET. The alien's going around killing people, and then he looks at him. And then his timer goes off in the kitchen and he goes back <laughs> and he, that ending doesn't make any sense, right? What is he doing? Is he sacrificing himself, distracting the alien? Is he making a connection with the alien, right? Like that ambiguity doesn't make sense. The combination of trying to be E.T., trying to have the empathy and then never actually exploring the, the alien's story is, a mis- is, I don't want to call it a mistake, but... That's where those two parts don't fuse, is that we never mm. learn anything about the alien. And he kind of wants to have his cake and eat it, too, and have his, his scary Jaws villain, but also this sympathetic alien. It's like, okay, but I wanna, if I want to have sympathy with this alien that's been murdering people, I want... They kind of compensate by just making the Air Force really evil, which is right. weird and different than E.T. Yeah. I mean, I think there's weird things in it where they say it's not actually the Air Force because there's multiple times where they say, oh, the Air Force doesn't do that or they don't do that. And so I think it's some other weird 
government thing that's covering as the Air Force. It's really weird. I because I was paying attention to that. I was like, okay, so who are the bad guys in it? Okay, it's the Air Force. But then there are elements everywhere. I was like, that doesn't make sense. Like, why are they why are they doing that? Yeah, and they have a military base within driving distance, but have no presence whatsoever in the town before this, which right. is bizarre. That would be that's a right. company town, right? That's an that's an Air Force town if there's a base right there. ET, there's weird stuff. Again, I'll bring it up again. The I still don't understand why they're wearing astronaut costumes when they yeah. come into the house. It's, it's great, weird. Though. It is great in that it, it adds to the confusion. That's the only nitpick I have of ET, though. You dig into the logic and everything makes sense. Yes. This movie, it's like everything J.J. Abrams does, you dig into the logic and it's like it starts to fall apart. And it's only when he has effective characters that it's okay, that it works out. And it, it works out in this. I don't know if this is his best movie. I think Star Trek. Oh, I was going to say Force Awakens. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Force Awakens or Star Trek, which is kind of depressing when you think about it. He's never done anything. This is his only non-franchise movie, which is insane. I can't think of another director who's like that because a lot of times what directors will do, they'll do the franchise movie so then they can make their own passion project. He's done so many franchise movies, and he's also done very few movies too because he's done... Mission Impossible 3, two Star Treks, two Star Wars, and Super 8. Six movies. He's been working from the 80s onward. Disney has eaten up all these directors' careers, but him, Matt Reeves, the guy that did um, Tron Legacy, what's his name? Joe? Joseph Kaczynski. Those three, I don't think have done... And Tim Burton. Well, Tim Burton. Tim Burton's basically only done Disney movies since he did Allison. I mean, there's like a couple... But but those three combined have one original thing, and it's an homage to Spielberg, right? That's what's so weird, and like everything's um, well. So Joseph Kaczynski, he has Tron Legacy, Oblivion, Only the Brave, Oblivion. now Top Oblivion. Gun, Maverick. Okay, but that's like a lot of franchises. Mm-hmm. It's just so weird to have like directors where their success is doing a successful reboot or a successful sequel. And it's still like they're not doing their own story. So it's, it's just the age we live in. But I, I still think Super 8 does it better than almost anyone else in terms oh, of completely. capturing the feel. We can rip apart his bad storytelling. But that's mostly just because we're comparing him to Spielberg. That's not really right. fair. So actually, would it be fair to say your biggest issue with this movie is the ending? Yeah, but it, it's not like it ruins the movie for me. It's just like... It's it's a little bit of an anticlimax, slight mm-hmm. anticlimax. Going in, I did not remember the a- ending. I honestly thought they went inside the water tower. That's how mm. badly I remember the ending. Watching it, it's like, okay, whatever. Like, Spielberg sticks his landings. J.J. Abrams doesn't. Like, that's the difference between them. He did it in Force Awakens. He did in mm-hmm. Star Trek, where they actually had really good climaxes. But even you could argue the series immediately has a... Right, it gets overturned in some ways. The seeds mm-hmm. of those fail of their failures, in either the series or the sequel, are sown in that movie too. So, like, he just doesn't know how to stick the landing and have a complete unit of storytelling that works. Mm. But it doesn't ruin the movie for me. Yeah, I don't think I have as much of an issue with the ending of like kind of the alien stuff. Honestly, my biggest problem with this movie is Joe. I don't think he's charismatic enough to lead this movie just for the first like especially 15 to 20 minutes i'm like this kid is really bland 
everyone else is so much more interesting than he is. And especially when you put him next to both Charles and Alice, who I feel like are doing a lot more. And I think it's because Joel Courtney is such, this is like his first like big role. And he's such a newcomer to it that he doesn't know how to handle some of these scenes. And I think the biggest flaws in that come out in the one-on-one scenes with him and Alice. Because Elle Fanning is just acting at a completely different caliber than he is. And is doing so much more. And especially the scene whenever they're in his room. In the movie and in the movie within yes, the movie. Yes, exactly. She's, she's two separate good performances. Yes, yeah. And especially in the scene where they're watching the the film of his mom and she's doing all of these little things and especially like the crying in it. I was like, that's actually like really effective of just kind of like the holding back of things. And then Joe Courtney tries to do the same thing where he's like, oh, it's, it's, it doesn't matter, you know, and like it's just very much like you could tell J.J. Abrams was like, OK, Joel, now I want you to say this, but kind of like stutter on the line because you're struggling on it a little bit. And you can tell it was like an action directed by the director instead of I'm assuming Elle Fanning was also directed very heavily in that scene. But there's a lot more natural talent. And I know she's had a lot more experience than he has. And what other things was he in? Joel Courtney? Yeah. He hasn't really done much since uh, Super 8. He was in the uh, oh, what are those movies called? The Kissing Booth movies from netflix what tv was he was he in he does continue the trend of like the scrawny fluffy haired kid <laughs> that's awkward kid. Yeah. and doesn't know how to talk yeah, yeah. he's my vessel okay <laughs> that's what it is i have a lot of empathy for that so yes that's why it doesn't bother me yeah this is the first thing that he was in but then he was in arl stein's the haunting hour uh don't let me go agents of shield oh interesting I feel like he was in Psych, but I'm APB, uh, poor Buster. Oh, poor Buster. I don't know him from anything. I just identify with his name. <laughs> so, yes, that is exactly. He's it was a Mary Sue, Mary Sue, but for stuttering. I don't know what it's called, but you're right though. His performance is not great. It really isn't good, especially compared to a lot of the other kids who, in some ways, have easier roles because they're not trying to show that they have the weight of their mom's recent death on them. And struggling with the dad relationship. But yeah, I just think he was a bit too young for this and too inexperienced. The parts I really love of this movie and what I think J.J. Abrams does best are the set pieces. I think he directs all of those so well. Honestly, my favorite scene in this movie is the... Well, my two favorite scenes in this movie are the gas station and the guy fixing the electrical wire. Those are the most Spielbergian moments. And part of it is also because if you listen to the director's commentary, he's like, oh, yeah, that's moment. Yeah, Spielberg was on set. And I was like, oh, what would you do in this situation? Oh, yeah, I do that. And yeah, they're the best scenes in the movie. I'm like, yeah, they're very, especially the guy fixing the electrical wire. That one is straight out of Jurassic Park, where you see the stuff kind of moving off in the distance. He tries to move it a bit more and the thing gets stuck. The noise comes from it silence and then just immediate thrashing and that you just see like the crushing in of the window oh my gosh is amazing that is an incredible scene it's like the almost a reverse jaws problem where jaws and this movie both do so well at not showing the dang thing for so long they get so far into the movie without showing it that in jaws it's a crappy model and the you know famous line spielberg is like gosh darn it they're gonna believe it because like We've earned 
them just buying it at this mm-hmm. point. For some reason, it doesn't it doesn't work with the alien mm. for me. Once they show yeah. it, like it, I don't know why. Maybe you're right. It's just the kid talking to him. That scene doesn't work because he's not acting very well. But yeah, everything before you see the alien is so good. The train scene is bad. I think. Sorry, I meant more of like all of the stuff beforehand of them doing the scene leading up to oh, the crash yeah. is amazing. Yes, yes, yes. Leading up to it is amazing, and then. The train crash itself is terrible, honestly. I don't think it's terrible, terrible. but... Well, and this is because I love The Fugitive. This is one of my favorite movies, and that's the greatest train crash so of all time. It, so. Oh my gosh, dude. We're going to have to... I'm going to pick it for one of these best 90s movies. <laughs> We're definitely going to do it, because that will be my pick Your for the pick 90s. for the... <laughs> A train scene that feels completely CG and has no stakes because of it. Not that it's all CG, but because it's all CG and the logic is completely missing they should be completely safe where they are mm-hmm. and i actually misremembered the geography of that scene because i i corrected in my mind to what would make sense mm-hmm. but the like the train is crashing a or could just ignore the fact that the train it's a giant freight train hitting a car like it's not going to derail but fine it's sometimes crazy things happen which abram said that that's his one of his homages to these like bombastic 80s movies where just a little thing happens and everything goes crazy afterwards. But the guy survives, which is completely nuts. That is the craziest whatever. thing. Because I remember watching this the first time. Like, I was, what, 12, 13? I can't remember how old it was when this movie came out. And I was like, what the heck? Like, that doesn't make any sense that he survives. He was originally supposed to die. But Abram said that he needed him to stay alive. So that way, that was why the kids wouldn't say anything For about it. exposition. Yeah. That's the problem. He needed oh, him for exposition, bad... so he... Yeah, it's a bad decision. Yeah. These are the things, right? Like, he, he has these little bad habits that Spielberg doesn't have that you see the seams in the filmmaking. But again, I'm criticizing this movie a lot. It's great. Yeah, it's like, it really is great. It's just that, like, I guess you could kind of say this is how the kids are imagining it, which right. makes more sense. But, like, the train hits, like, mm-hmm. things are flying in the air. Yeah. What's causing things to go up, right? right? Like... It's his Michael Bay moment. That whole scene, I was that like, is this is Michael a Michael Bay, Bay movie. And I think the, the town is shot beautifully. The tank scene, it's crazy. It, it's very oh, like... The neighborhood scene, uh, Iron Giant. The neighborhood scene actually uh, uh, reminds me of like uh, War of the Worlds oh. where you just get the chaos and like you never get a sense of where things are, what things are like. And it's great. Yeah. That's great because you, you've already seen the alien, but you're going back to this like, where is it? Yeah. Chaos. And it's wonderful. It very much feels like the like old 50s, 60s horror movies where it's like the military is fighting against this giant thing. And just for no reason, there's like tanks everywhere and jets flying in and all of these troops are shooting everywhere. And you're like, what are they doing? And it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. It starts to feel like Iron Giant because mm-hmm. it's like bring in the tanks. Whereas an 80s movie would be like, all right, are we going to nuke this town or right. not? Like, like, that's not crazy. Like, it, that feels great. That's an amazing scene. Again, it's great an amazing scene. Great set piece. That feels completely not just like a great homage, but like he's building off of what what he's inspired mm-hmm. by, which is great. Watching E.T. actually made me realize how great E.T. is. Yeah. Like, yeah. again, because you have this spectacle. J.J. Abrams, when he sticks to landing on these big set pieces, creates a great feeling. Spielberg does it with like sticks and rocks and he's, spit and glue and he's taped like he's not using that much stuff to 
feel grand, right? The the light of the guys coming into the house mm. and you just see the light hitting the the wall as they're walking up like that that is amazing. And it's the same feeling you get in this movie. It's just he he needs more space to make that feeling because he's not as good a director as Spielberg is. I think the problem too is that they're from different schools of thought where Spielberg is coming in from this whole do it your own kind of like make it your own movie sort of thing. Don't really worry about the exposition. And that's why 70s and 80s movies seem so weird is because they're expositionless most of the time. Just things are not explained at all. And it just happens. And you just buy into it because you're like, oh, yeah, this is the world that we're living in. And the problem is now that J.J. Abrams and like I think the time that he went to school and like especially with his career in TV and networks are like, you can't leave this thing unexplained. You have to describe what it is. And so I think he relies too much on exposition because that's what he was taught. And I think Spielberg has honestly shifted into this wheelhouse as well, where a lot of his movies nowadays are very exposition heavy, where they, it, it would be impossible, but I'd be fascinated to see what Spielberg's Ready Player One would have been like if he had directed it in the 80s. I know that doesn't make any sense, but just that movie is like 80% exposition. And I still think it's fun. I don't think it's a particularly great movie, but I just think that Abrams feels like he needs to have the exposition where he's like, oh, this would be a great scene. But they do also have to say that in order for this thing to make sense, which I don't really think you need. All my criticisms of, of this movie are basically what it reveals, the comparison reveals mm -hmm. about him and the problems he has. But in terms of it being like the omni-nostalgia that Ready Player One, mm -hmm. Stranger Things, literally so Just many like other everything things now. like Sin. Yeah. I'm not going to hold those against this movie because it did it well and it did it first in some right. sense. Right, it launched the 80s nostalgia as not just 80s nostalgia, but like, we're just going to do it again. Like, we're going to actually just ape that style. And this movie mostly avoids the biggest problems with that. Like, mm -hmm. I have a huge problem with, um, what are those little dolls called? Gremlins? With the big heads. Trolls. No, the big heads. Not an 80s Cabbage. thing. Oh. Right now. No, you go into the store and they've got every version oh, of every Punko Pops. Oh, Pops. Funko Pops. It's Funko Pops nostalgia is what I call it because it's I'm a fan of all the things like I'm a fan of the 80s because I love every 80s movie. Right. right? That's Ready Player One. Look at my Bender like, okay. Pop. Yeah. Yeah. No one likes all the things. You're a nerd about like two things or three things. And obviously these kids, it feels close to that with them. Like, yeah, they got a thing. They got a thing poster up. What are they? They get whatever the movie poster is like, okay. They don't like all those things, mm -hmm. but like it feels more in line with the, the pop culture references that you get in E.T. Where mm -hmm. like, yeah, he's got all these dolls of all these popular things at the time, but then he's like playing with them as a kid and he's doing his own thing with them. And you get that sense. They're, they're creative, right? They're making their own movies. Yeah, it's a zombie movie, but they're like trying to do their own thing. It's weird because it's movies and like. That makes it feel less everyman with the kids because it's like, yeah, you liked waking movies mm -hmm. as a kid. But I think it still works because it's based on his actual childhood experience instead of just like, I have every movie poster in my room, right. you know. I'm going to gush about E.T. for just one second because one of my favorite things, I love Star Wars so much. And one of my favorite things is watching movies from the like late 70s and 80s where there's Star Wars memorabilia in it. But it's like the off brand, like nowhere near precise version that we have. And the fact that Elliot is just like picking, it's like, this is Hammerhead. 
and this is Hornface, and like, oh, I know the names to all of those characters, but they're not named yet, you know, but he does have like Boba Fett at the end, and just like the fact that... Greedo, it's Greedo. Well, he has Greedo and Boba Fett. It's just that there's that kind of like messiness to it where it's still just this new thing and George Lucas hasn't gone in and retconned all these things so that every single character that shows up in every single frame has a name and a backstory. And just that it's like, oh yeah, it's these things. And like, they kind of shoot each other, pew, pew, and that's it. But there's a lot of Star Wars in E.T. There's so much Star Wars. It's wild. I sort of decided, okay, I'm not going to make, I'm not going to criticize Stranger Things or uh, this movie for being, doing the references as much because it's like oh he did it a he lot so like much. way more than i remembered i knew the yoda thinks it's great it's a great yeah that's a great bit you know he thinks it's oh. home and then et is in the senate let's not talk about that <laughs> they can't be in the same universe it doesn't make sense <sighs> yes again i agree with you that i think this is a great movie and there are a lot of fantastic elements my other major issue with this movie and i'm actually going to relate it to one of our more recent episodes is the problem that was solved in finding nemo was not solved in this so the issue that they had in finding nemo throughout the production of the movie was no one liked marlin because his backstory was being shown in flashbacks throughout the movie at the end of the movie, whenever he is rescuing Nemo from the fishnet was whenever it was revealed that Coral was killed by the Barracuda and that all of the other eggs were eaten. So people would watch the movie and they're like, I don't like it because I hate Marlin. Because you don't know where he's coming from. And then they fix that by putting the prologue scene at the beginning. And from then on, you're like, boom, I know exactly where this guy is coming from. And you're so empathetic towards him. And you just, even though he's insanely neurotic, and drives this kid crazy, you know where he's coming from, and you have empathy for that. I have no idea where Joe's dad is coming from, and I don't really like him throughout the movie. Yeah, they're sort of relying on casting to make you not hate his guts, mm-hmm. I think. It's funny, because watching it again, you're like a little more empathetic, but it doesn't really solve who he is. And it's not told from his perspective, too, which is the other mm-hmm. problem. Not that it should have been, but like... Why does he have the detective Marlin's subplot? Easy- I don't understand that. Sorry, continue. The detective subplot. Like, why is half of the movie him trying to inspect this whenever the kids have already figured out what's happening? I just don't understand it. It detracts from it. Yeah, that's... His main story in this should be... Because the whole issue that sets up between him and Joe is the whole thing of the baseball camp, where he's like, you need to go there because this is what's best for both of us. And their whole emotional journey throughout this should be them figuring out that they need each other. That's what they, they come to at the end. Him. In a way, you don't. There's no payoff for that because nothing leads them to that. They're just separated for a bit. And he's like, "Oh, I missed you." I'm like, "Does he still go to baseball camp? Like, what's happening?" <laughs> like, yeah, probably. I mean, you get the feeling that they reconciled, but the he doesn't do the the groundwork of actually building that story. And and yeah, there's a lot of weird stuff where it's like, well, if if I was watching an '80s movie the sheriff would be investigating and figure things Mm -hmm. out. So I'm going to have my sheriff character be investigating and figure things out. But the best part of his investigating is dealing with the townsfolk. If that was the rest of the movie for him, that'd be amazing because that stuff is incredible. Like, I love him going around. He's like, oh, I'm sorry, Earl. I don't know what to do. We'll we'll get us something out on that. Like, that's amazing. The cutting, cutting, the smash cutting between the weird things that are happening is great. Yeah. And they don't linger in that weirdness of what's going on in the town. Mm-hmm. enough 
my two words were almost like night or day or something. Mm. I couldn't get the, the metaphor right. right. But this movie works during the day. It doesn't work at night. Mm. I think that is a weird... All the things we're talking about sort of pay off that way where not 100% at night, it's bad um, because the scenes where you're not, not seeing the alien is great. But when you get to the climaxes at night and it's like, what's happening? What was sort of hiding the alien at nighttime kind of let you do reveal more of the alien mm-hmm. and then the day t- you know that's the, the daytime you're figuring out everything that happened and then you get to the climax and it goes back to night and it's like you do get the cool tank scene but the having the finale underground at night it's like i'm just not clear on what's happening yeah like, that's where it sort of not falls apart but it starts to unravel and then it's a little on the nose but the great locket floating away moment is pretty powerful mm-hmm. but again it doesn't feel like they earn that is much. Well, Claire pointed something out. Well, first off, she was just saying, like, you're not just supposed to, like, let go after that sort of thing. Like, that's not a great emotional message because then you're going to have big issues with that later on. What it reminds me of is in Princess Diaries, whenever they're at the very beginning, whenever it's uh, Mia and Lily riding down the street and Mia is talking about, like, missing her dad. And Lily's like, what? Are you kidding me? It's been already it's already been like six months and I'm like, six months after your dad died? And like, for this one, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's only been four months since his mom died. What? Like, yeah, it doesn't be letting it's go. crazy. It's a powerful image. But then, yeah, you think about it. It's like, A, it's just going to a big pile of garbage. It's going to fall to the ground. So it's not <laughs> like it's going to space. Right? Like, like somebody's going to be like, hey, we found this and give it back to him two months later. Right, like, right. it's not. <laughs> That's a really um, good point. Yeah, it sort of evokes other moments. It came out before, but it evokes uh, First Man, if you've seen First oh, Man. Oh, see, I would say the exact opposite, because I I think the emotional payoff in First Man is one of the greatest. No, okay. I'm just saying it's kind of coasting off of that mm. imagery mm. of that type of thing, which has been in movies a bunch. Right. But yeah, that's an example of it actually working oh my gosh. and hitting you like a freight train. <sighs> yeah, that scene absolutely destroys me. That's... That is an incredible way of doing that. And I think he tries to pull the Spielberg thing of having that be the visual motif. But I'm like, I need to see more from this kid that he actually misses her than him just kind of pulling out the locket every once in a while. Because it just doesn't Yeah, it's a, it, it needs to either be that the first man thing is that like you totally even forgot that. Yeah. Like, like it gets a huge part of him, but you don't see into his life. Right. You don't see into his brain. And then you reveal that at the very end, mm. right? And it hits you like a ton of bricks. Yep. Or, yeah, it needs to be more invested. In but this is just like, let me have him pull it out and look at it to just remind us that he's missing his mom. Mm-hmm. Instead of like, you're not delving more or holding it back. You kind of get this middle ground where it's like kind of cheap. Now, we're criticizing the movie a lot, but it's not. I mean, it does work. Yes. Mostly. I think we're criticizing it because we're comparing it to E.T., which is one of the greatest movies of all time. And so it's hard to stand up to that measure. Which, okay, I'm going to harp on one more thing. This is what I think the biggest emotional issue is in this movie is that he's trying to round out so many emotional subplots where the beauty of E.T. is it just focuses on Elliot trying to get over, or not trying to get over, but trying to figure out how to live without his dad. That's why it pays off so well is because you're not invested in what and how Gert is going to miss E.T. or what what's his older brother's name, Mike or something like that? I can't remember. Who's a way better guy than I remembered. Yeah. Like you kind of, 
the douchebag <laughs> at the beginning part like makes you think, oh yeah, this is this the eighties like stereotype of like all these older kids are jerks mm-hmm. and this could take a long time. It's like no, he pretty much is a good brother for the whole movie from when he finds out about ET. He's he's right there with his brother the whole time. Mm-hmm. So. But yeah, anyway. Because he sets up the emotional state of everyone and it doesn't really change. And that's okay because it's not about them. Like, you know, that Mike or whatever the brother's name is, is it's all explained in that dinner table scene whenever Elliot says the thing about, like, oh, well, he's in Mexico with Shirley or whatever her name is. And he's like, great, look what you did. You, you, you have to think about other people aside from yourself. And you're like, okay, I know where he's coming from. And then Gert is like, oh, where's Mexico? And that explains like, okay, she's too young to understand this. And so that's why it works so well is because it's not trying to fix everyone's problems. It's just trying to deal with what Elliot is dealing with instead of having all of the other characters kind of go through an emotional subplot while the main character is going through their main emotional plot. And I think each one of those could work, but in their own movie, his journey gets hindered a bit. I'd almost even say lose the romance between him and Alice because it doesn't really pay off. Because you need to have that relationship between him and his dad. Let the relationship between him and Alice be the foil that is pushing him and his dad apart instead of his dad coming in saying, I don't like Alice, and then leaving again for like another 30 minutes before coming back and saying, don't hang out with Alice again. I'm sorry, J.J. Abrams, if you're listening to this. I'm not trying to, I know writing is an incredibly hard process. <laughs> J.J., I'll never forgive oh you for what you did to Star Wars. Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> Delay the movie and fix it. You can keep picking it apart, but it it feels good when you're watching it. It does. Like, it feels effective. I'm sort of thinking, hmm, I actually think I like Stranger Things as this thing better because I think the characters are more effective. Mm. But it's a show. You have more time to work on it. Yeah, it doesn't feel like if this movie had was a miniseries or had more time to work on the characters, it would know what to do with the characters. What I will say is that the relationship between the boys is incredible. All of the scenes with them are amazing. Like, I'd say all of the scenes with them in this outshine any in Stranger Things. Yes, absolutely. This is the best crew, the guy crew. Mm -hmm. Like, this is the best friends, I think. It's better than some 80s movies. Like, Mm -hmm. it's really good banter and really good. Like, some of them are just stupid kids. Like, they're not all super smart dorks. Like, some of them are just idiots that like blowing crap up. (laughs) Like. Like, it's great. It's a great, weird mix of friends. The director, whatever that kid's name is. Charles. Is great. Yes. Like, oh. he's very bossy, and then you kind of get a sense of why he's grumpy, and he's yelling at his friend, but, like, they, they, it's very real. It feels very real and realistic to how that would play out. So, yeah. It's, like, we're not mentioning the parts that it nails, mm-hmm. I guess, as much. It nails that. It nails some of the set pieces are amazing. The alien is great till you see it. It's not bad when you no. see it. It's just sort of... You can't really even see it still. I couldn't sketch it, yeah. right? Yeah, like I don't know what it looks like. It's almost like maybe it should have been more shown mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. Like, it's supposed to be this Cloverfield monster, but then that last scene where they're talking, you're supposed to... There's a moment where it's like you see its eyes, and I think you're supposed to start empathizing mm-hmm. with it, but it's too late yeah. for that point. But, yeah, when you can't see it, the alien is great. It's just like, where? what is it? Mm-hmm. Where is it coming from? No idea, which is great. It gets the small town feel, yes. the people in the town. is excellent. One thing that he does precisely to a T that Spielberg did is capture the chaos of an overpopulated American household because all of the scenes in Charles' house are amazing. 
They're so good. So good. Just, <laughs> so I good. honestly think maybe the camera work is the best part of this movie because some of the scenes, like the way that it is shot, the kinetic nature of the camera is incredible. Like that scene, whenever you're in the household and it goes up to the mom and the daughter and then flips around to the kids who are banging on the table, then flips to the dad from Brooklyn Nine-Nine that's like, oh, hey, how's it going? Then flips to Joe and then the reveal of Charles sitting at the TV is, oh my gosh, amazing. Like a masterwork in camera movement. I'm comparing it to, to E.T. and like the lights going through the blinds thing. The way that he succeeds so well and how he shoots it is not an 80s way of shooting on a lot of these. Like that, that scene you described is not, I don't, you'd see that in any 80s movie, right? It's just good. It's just good filmmaking. There are moments where he shines by himself without just showing that he can copy some, something else. Even when you're picking it apart, you never feel like, it's never a threat that you're going to decide the movie is bad because it is, it feels great when you're watching it. and. That feeling that is not fake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, there's like this genuine want for that. And it doesn't feel out of place too, which I think is something that we're going to be looking at with a lot of these ones that are maybe more on the ripoff side is that they're going to be elements that feel out of place because it doesn't match up with what the story is. It's just trying to rip off of something else. And the elements in that house feel like exactly spot on. Like, I think that's great. And I think a lot of the chaos between the friendships works so well because nowadays with like this this buddy films where it's a group of kids it's like they're all friends but maybe one of them has an issue with each other and then this one they all just kind of annoy each other at times but then they're also like oh but we're all friends which i'm like yeah that's what it's like when you're just hanging out with a group of friends is there's sometimes where even though they're your best friends are absolutely insufferable but you still like love them and you're like okay i'm still gonna help you out with your stupid movie that you're doing there are a lot of bickering yeah and it's great. And yeah, the dynamic between the kids is great. And even like the dad being a detective, it feels good when you're watching it. It doesn't feel out of place. Mm-hmm. It's just you think about it later. And it's like, why was that in right. the movie? Like, but when you're watching it, everything feels right. Mm-hmm. And it's only when you think. And this is the J.J. Abrams' biggest problem as a filmmaker, I think, is that instead of building a world and then knowing how to not show it, like Spielberg or lots of world building where where the world building is done from the writer or whatever you're writing this you have this world built and then you're deciding not to show everything you've you've built um he never does Mm. that he knows how to create the feeling of looking at something of substance and a lot of times that box get gets opened up and it's there's nothing in it Mm -hmm. lost is the perfect example it's not really his fault because i think he just directed the pilot or whatever but like that's the type of thing he's had in a lot of his movies where Okay, either it's like Star Trek Into Darkness where it's like, we know what the twist is, stop pretending. Mm. Like, you know, it's very obvious, and then it's just like, of course. Or it's disappointing. And so I think this is the one where that disappointment doesn't cause the movie to fail. And so it's why it's one of his best movies, because that that's still has sort of a... It's not a twist ending, but it's a... You don't know what the alien mm-hmm. is, right? That kind of disappointment that that reveal sort of not working Mm -hmm. doesn't ruin the movie well i think he also realizes too is that one of his greatest gifts is the fact that he is one of the best at setting up something i mean you look at you know the first season of lost you look at the first star trek you look at force awakens 
amazing setups with endings that are like, after this, it could lead to anywhere. And it creates a lush world, a lush environment for other creative things to happen. And I think he does kind of realize that he struggles a bit with ending things. I wouldn't say that he's the worst at it or he doesn't know how to do it. I think he is just so powerful in setting things up that he's trying to match whatever it is that he's doing. And that that's just a hard thing when you're that talented at setting up and creating a world and creating an environment. And he talks about this when creating Alias, I think. He's like, the storyline was about, you know, she's in school and the worst thing that happens is bad grades and this sort of thing. And so, you know, what could happen that would actually make this interesting that would keep this going? Well, maybe she's a spy. And like, that just fixes everything, you know? And, and so it's like these great setups for things, but it's like, where do you go after that? He knows how to build a box from the outside, mm-hmm. but he's not building this great mystery and then unfolding it. He's just sort of, he knows how to create this. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Mm-hmm. He should not have come back for Star Wars. Right. He didn't want to. He didn't, he didn't direct he the didn't want to. Star Trek. I think he realized that, yeah. It's weird because it feels like you never get the sense he's going to evolve as a director beyond what he's doing now. Like, it never feels like there's a next chapter, mm. right? There's no, there's no Schindler's List <laughs> for J.J. I don't know. There's no, there's no Jurassic Park for J.J. Abrams, you know? I, there's probably no E.T. That's kind of sad, but... I don't know. I think after watching this, I am pumped for whatever he's going to do next. And there isn't anything on his IMDb, at least. And so I'm like, is he going to do something? Like, is he done with directing? Like, what's going on? And I think he's one of the most intriguing filmmakers nowadays, just because I'm like, I have no idea what he's going to do next. If you look at his catalog of films, it's all over the place. And I know it's a lot of franchise stuff, but it's all very different franchises. And it's so much more interesting to me than like Colin Trevorrow, you know, or something where I'm like, okay, he did that. I don't really care what. He's going to do next. And Colin Trevorrow is another one that sort of knows how to create a feeling, but it falls apart. Like it dissolves very quickly. And then it's like, why did everyone watch Jurassic World? Oh my like, gosh. like, like, what, what, why are we doing this? Why again? are there two sequels? You know, Star to it? Wars. Yeah. I don't know. We both love Force Awakens. The bitter ending sours it a little bit, but that was a much better setup than Jurassic World. Like, that was still a great movie. Mm-hmm. You can pick it apart, but like, it, it got the feeling and the and the settings right. J.J. Abrams know how to do that, but you know it'll be interesting. I'm more pessimistic about. There's other people like him that are better. Matt Reeves, I think, is a better director than him. I was very impressed with the Batman. Mm-hmm. Again, those are all franchises, right. but like he he knows how to finish. We know he knows how to finish a a series effectively too. I think this is a great movie, and it's worth watching. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't blame it for. The 80s nostalgia no, that exists now not that, at all. and everything. But I wish people would maybe chill out. In, in people's mind, yeah, well, in people's minds, this movie is like a total ripoff and like it just created this environment where you can just do all these ripoffs. But you, after you watch it, it's like actually pretty subdued in terms of doing all the references mm-hmm. and, and pointing at itself and saying 80s, 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 you know, right? right? And, um, I think people could learn from actually watching the movie because I think that that stereotype is what has happened with everything else now mm-hmm. and it's exhausting. Yeah. And maybe people could actually watch the movie to learn how to do it right. 100%. Well, should we move to trivia and challenge? Yes. Okay. All right, question number one. So before 
Abrams got his start as a director, he was known as a writer and specifically a script doctor where he would work on first drafts or, you know, whatever version the draft was in and basically just fix up some of the plot points, dialogue, that sort of thing. So which of these films did Abrams do a pass on? A, The Fifth Element, B, Total Recall, C, Gattaca, or D, Armageddon? Armageddon. That's correct. So he did a pass or two on it, which, I mean, yeah, just means that he rewrote parts of it and said it was an interesting time and an interesting experience trying to fix up that movie. It's got some good lines. It's true. So now, also, I kind of have to throw out this trivia fact. Um, So Abrams has 56 producing credits on his IMDb of films or TV shows that have already come out. But if you look at his total producing credits, it's like 110, but only 56 of them have come out. And so right now he is slated for basically half of his producing career as of right now. And I know probably half or more of those things will just never come to fruition. You know, it's the stuff that like the 10 movies that have been on Spielberg's, oh, he's directing this for like the last 20 years that have just never happened. But yeah, it's just wild. So which of these was Abrams' first producing credit? A, regarding Henry. B, before sunrise. C, dead man walking. Or D, Pleasantville. Pleasantville. Final answer? Mm Mm-hmm. It's incorrect. It's A, regarding Henry, which was also one of his first writing jobs, too. So also, as we were saying earlier, that there is some film memorabilia in this movie. Which film memorabilia is not featured in the movie? A, Star Wars. B, Halloween. C, The Thing. Or D, Dawn of the Dead. Dawn of the Dead. Final answer? Yeah. It's incorrect. It's The Thing, actually. Okay. There's poster and some Star Wars toys and Halloween and Dawn of the Dead posters. Stranger Things has gotten criticized because they have a Thing poster in their bedroom, right? Mm-hmm. Somebody has a Thing poster in their oh, bedroom. Oh, and it's that like front and center. Is. I was confused. No kid would have that. Like, that's not And then accurate. they watch... Well, there's a scene where the high school teacher is watching the Thing. Yeah, the Thing came out in 1982, so it hadn't come out yet at the time of this movie taking place. So, Spielberg is also known for being a producer as well. Can you list 10 films that Spielberg produced and didn't direct, but that relates to his body of work, his being, anything kind of related to him? So it can be an homage. It can be a continuation of a series that he did. If you think of it and can make a case for it, go for it. Jurassic Park 2, The Lost World. No, he directed that. No, he directed that. Three. Yep. Three. Super eight. Yeah. I mean, there's other ones that are continuations of his series. Jaws 2. No. Mm -mm. I don't think so. Close Encounters of the Fourth Kind. I mean, you you were on a good track with your first one. That'd get you a couple others. Oh, all of Jurassic World. Yeah. We got to name them. Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom. Mm -hmm. Jurassic World. Everything's in amber, and we got everybody back. Coming out June 10th. Whatever <laughs> Dominion, yeah. Dominion, yeah. Finally got every, the band back together. <laughs> there is a, a spinoff movie that people have said is very similar to E.T., and, and it's a big turn for this franchise. 
Fast Five. Just kidding. I have no idea what you're talking about. It's about a robot? Poltergeist. Poltergeist. You gave me that one. I just remember Poltergeist. He yeah. didn't direct it, but he produced it. You got to give that to me. I didn't have it on you my list, it. but... You, you handed that to me on the silver platter. It's a, e. It came ripoff. out like only a couple years ago. It's about, yeah, no, it's about a girl and a robot. This one is not directed by it, but one guy directed all of the other movies in this franchise. And one of his films was uh, part of one of the previous questions. The director of the franchise is Michael Bay. Transformers? Yes, but not that. Well, see, you're asking me details of the Transformers series. I don't know. The, the Buzz <laughs> You're Bee. close. Busby Bear. Busby Berkeley. Busby Robot Bear. Bumblebee. He produced. What? What are you doing? He also it's actually paper. produced a lot of the Transformers movies. Yeah, I think I knew that. It's very it's weird. It's weird. So this one is tricky because I feel like it's not trying to be him, but it owes a lot to one of his films. And it's a World War II film. There's two films that came out at the same time. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. I got you. I got you. Okay. Mm-hmm. Flags of Our Fathers. Letters, yes. letters from Iwo Jima. There's an animated one. It feels like an 80s kind of schlocky horror movie. It's weird. It freaked me out when I was a kid. One with the haunted house. What is it? The house. And then it's alive. Yeah, you're close. It's alive. Scary house. <laughs> Spoopy house. <laughs> <laughs> Spoopy Five House. Um, it's gonna kill me. So just tell me. Monster House. I'm not gonna get it. Monster House. Yeah, I wouldn't get yeah. it. figure that out. Yeah, I knew. I give it to me. I knew what that movie. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's interesting seeing some of his producing credits because actually his first two producing credits were Robert Zemeckis movies. And Robert Zemeckis's first two movies actually. Did he do Ghostbusters? No, but he did do the Back to the Futures and Inner Space. Yeah. yeah. Cool. What's the other? Is that that's good? Got it. Those are basically the ones that I had in mind. There were a couple that I'm like, eh, maybe arachnophobia and maybe like Twister or Small Soldiers, maybe. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I got ten. So yeah, you got ten. You have to give me the prize. Good. Uh, the prize is nothing right now. The prize is a white Rubik's cube flies around like a gear at the end of Iron Giant. <laughs> That's supposed to be metal, but it looks like it's styrofoam. It looks like crap. Yeah, <laughs> it, it doesn't like... look great. But yeah, this movie is basically E.T. and the Iron Giant. That's the biggest problem with this movie is that you could just watch E.T. and Iron Giant. True. But it's still a great movie. Again, sorry. Sorry, J.J. Great J. movie. Abrams. Great movie. Oh, we both, we both think it's a, a remake. Or a, a retelling. Like a retelling. homage. Two retellings. Two retellings way, way up. Nice. Well, I think that about wraps us up for this episode. So the next episode that we're going to be doing is actually kind of the genesis of the series idea where we are going to be covering The Last Duel slash Rashomon. This is actually an idea presented to us by our guest who's going to be on, Dylan Worthington, who wanted to talk about both movies. And I said, we only do one movie per episode. And then I was like, well, maybe that's actually really interesting. That's where we got this idea from. I've not seen The Last Duel yet, so I hope it's actually like Rashomon. No human being has seen The Last Duel yet. Right. So. We'll be the first, the first three. Anyways, that's the movie. 
two weeks. It'll come out. Be there. As always, please make sure to follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, all the good stuff. You can find us at Rules of the Frame. That is where you can message us with questions, comments, concerns, anything along those lines. Or if you have a film recommendation, you can also put that out there too. Who knows? We might end up covering it. We'd also really appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That just helps to make our show a bit more visible. You can also actually rate us on Spotify now. If you're on the app, you can scroll up to the top. There will be a little star there, and that's where you can give us the rating. It takes only a couple seconds, and it is very helpful for us. Or if you just want to share us with family and friends, then we really appreciate that too. Got to say thanks to John for the use of the graphic, and Caden Reed, Ethan Stafford, and Luke Hogan for the use of the theme song and the outro. This has been Film Analysis for a Modern Audience. 